Welcome to the RTS Washington faculty podcast, part of a 50 plus year endeavor to train pastors and other church leaders for the ministry of the gospel in the United States and around the world. My name is Scott Red. I'm the president here at RTS Washington, and I'm joined by our professor of New Testament academic dean, Tommy Keene, our professor of Old Testament and dean of students, Peter Lee, professor of systematic theology, Gray Sutanto, and our lecturer in New Testament, Dr. Paul Jean, and we are continuing through this series where we're delving into the great creed of the Christian church, that is the Apostles' Creed, and we're now coming to the fifth article, okay? Um, We've talked about God the Father and the nature of the first person of the Trinity. We've introduced uh, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ, but as the Apostles' Creed is wont to do, it focuses in on the incarnation of Christ. And so last time we talked about the conception of the Holy Spirit, and now we're going to delve into the other side of that equation, as it were, of the incarnation, which is born of the Virgin Mary. And now a, a story of a miraculous birth is not new to readers of the Bible. This is, this is a common theme. We might even say there's kind of an anticipation or adumbration. That there's this momentum that is moving towards this point in history of miraculous births, whether, whether it's uh, Samson's birth right, to the wife of Manoah, or Samuel's birth to Hannah. Um, we have these accounts of miraculous births leading to the deliverance of the people. And yet it all kind of seems to be a, a, you know, a, a dim shadow, a dim reflection of this event of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. So before we delve into that, I want to pass it over. Tommy Keene, unpack for us a little bit the importance of the virgin birth to Christian theology? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. As you already kind of mentioned, you've got this Old Testament theme of miraculous or unexpected birth that the New Testament picks up on in at least two of the Gospels. And so it seems to be continuing that theme. And yet at the same time, we have here something that's never happened before. As we were talking about last week, this is very much a unique event that no one seems to be expecting it, at least not in the way that it that it comes. And it raises a number of different questions. Actually, one an interesting thing that some of my students often will ask is when we do gospels, they'll ask, why do, does Mark and John not tell us about the virgin birth? Why do they not go back to the birth of Jesus? And it, it, some of that is just what we expect from the gospels, you know, we expect the gospels to be kind of like biographies of Jesus and the biography needs to start with the parents and, and the gospels don't fit that pattern in many ways, even Luke and Matthew, which do give us the virgin birth, jump from the virgin birth to Jesus at 30, a little interlude in Luke chapter two, but essentially birth and then 30. And uh, I kind of tell students actually the, If you think about what the Gospels are doing, and some scholars have called them passion narratives with extended introductions. You know, if you think about the focus of the Gospels on the death and resurrection of Christ, actually, it's the inclusion of the virgin birth that's a little bit difficult to explain, a little bit challenging to explain. Why talk about that and then jump to Jesus at 30 uh, when Jesus really, his work really got started? Uh, And... Luke and Matthew, in their different ways of telling uh, about this, uh, the virgin birth, r- really get at something that's very deep and profound 
and essential to the Christian religion. The Jesus born of the virgin fulfills something, uh, you know, from an Old Testament point of view, from a theological point of view, that wouldn't be able, we wouldn't be able to talk about without that. I'd be curious to hear from, from Gray and from Peter and from others about this, but the function of the incarnation, particularly born of the Virgin Mary, seems to be knit into the structure of Matthew and Luke in a way that you can't really remove. Yeah, I think what it emphasizes is that it is not the will of man that, again, this redemptive event occurs, but it's rather only due to God. And I think the fittingness of the virgin birth really comes through in this, and that God loves to work with impossible uh, scenarios, doesn't he? Uh, we had Nancy Guthrie on in a previous episode, and she just had released a book called God Works His Best with Nothing. I think that was the title of the book which is a biblical theology of nothingness. And she points out that God is empty. Sorry, I was just corrected. God works his best with empty. And uh, she basically traces out this theme of God working with emptiness, right? God working with a barren woman, as in the case of Sarah. God working in therefore surprising ways and in such a way where we cannot mistake this as exactly God who's doing it. We can't attribute this to any kind of human desire, human scheming, human strategy, but rather it's just God and God alone. And so at the very conception of Jesus Christ's human nature, it was really God who's at work. And so what we have in the Virgin Mary in this this article here in the Apostles' Creed connects us back to the conception of the Holy Spirit, doesn't it? That again, this is God's initiative. And we can talk a lot as well about Mary becoming the mother of God. That was a very important early Christian creed, but I just want to camp on that point first, that this is God's initiative and God does his best with empty, and that is the fitting theological narrative that is also at work here. Yeah, that that language of fitting, I think, is really helpful for resolving some of the paradoxes here. Like Matthew, Jesus is the fitting continuation of Israel's story. You get this real Israel focus in the incarnation uh, and in the birth narrative of Jesus in Matthew. He, you know, out of Egypt I called my son, and and the story is almost told as a a, a, a new Israel coming into, uh, into the world. Jesus is the fulfillment of those promises. Luke, you get this huge Adamic theme. Jesus as new Adam, as second Adam, to use Paul's language. And why does God do it that way? Well, because this is the fitting way to do it. And here I'd go to Hebrews 2. It was fitting that our archegon, our hype, our champion, our representative, become like us in every respect. And for that, he was, in order to achieve that, he, even in his birth, is like us, born of a woman. There is no uh, person on earth that was not b- born of a woman. And so Jesus fittingly fits that mold and that model and is able to then serve us as a perfect high priest in, in every respect. That, that language of fitting is really helpful there, Greg. It ties in with this theme. I mean, I think, I think was we're, we're looking, we talked about a little bit about the old Testament, but there's this idea that there can be children who are born, who are signs of a greater thing or signs of a larger movement, a sign of a development in a way. I mean, we mentioned Sarah with, with Isaac, God has promised to Abraham that he will have a seed, right? He'll have a nation. And for that to happen, there needs to be an Isaac, Right now, that comes much more into focus with characters like Samson. You know, the author of Judges says that Samson will be the beginning of the deliverance. You know, and then with Samuel, 
he will be the deliverance. Okay, this is interesting. This is the change from Samson to Samuel, and they're kind of meant to be compared. And they both are are miraculous births of a kind, not not virgin births, but miraculous births, right? And uh, you know, actually, Nancy will Nancy Guthrie will refer back to to these passages because this idea, the Song of Hannah in particular, is about God doing much with nothing, right? She could not bear. She was a barren mom, mother, and she bore through the power of God. And you're going to see this kind of language come back. You've got the wife of Manoah with Samson. You've got Hannah with Samuel. You've got this claim that comes up, particularly in Psalm 113. And there's this, there's this intertextuality between the Song of Hannah and Psalm 113 that's fascinating. You know, this idea that Psalm 113 ends with, which is that the barren woman will be rested at home, surrounded by her children, right? And there's this, there's this paradox, right, of how the Lord is bringing redemption and power and deliverance in this area of childbirth, okay? So you've got that theme of the sign child and the Lord bringing a miraculous child about in order to illustrate the coming deliverance. And then nested, of course, in the middle of this whole thing, you have Isaiah 714, okay, where the name Emmanuel being born to the virgin, right? And it, it, this is the passage that Matthew is referring back to when he now deals with this, this reality of the virgin birth of Jesus Christ. And I would argue, and I, and I argue this in the prophets class too, that, that what the New Testament authors are doing there, particularly Matthew, is he's laying hold of this whole tradition of God bringing about miraculous birth, God having a sign child, who marks the coming deliverance. And what does Emmanuel mean? You know, God with us. He's bringing judgment to the enemies of the people of God and blessings to God's people. And he's laying hold of all of that with that kind of, you know, precedential language, precedence of the, you know, the, the woman of, seven, of Isaiah 714 being a virgin. And he's saying, here we have, now have the new sign child. And, and, and look at this in a much more extravagant way, most extravagant, miraculous birth of all, it's by way of the Virgin Mary, right? I mean, to me, that seems to be, and I have to do this you know, as, as an Old Testament scholar, I suppose, try to figure out the logic of what the New Testament author is doing. And in, in this case in particular, this doctrine is very deeply based in the hermeneutics of how the New Testament's reading the Old. And so to me, that idea kind of makes a whole lot of sense of this whole passage. Like Emmanuel, like Samson, like Samuel, but of course, in a much more extravagant way, Christ is the sign child marking the deliverance that has come to his people. Well, I think Mary would agree with you. It's good to have, it's <laughs> well, good that to have, helps. Yeah, it's good to have Mary on your side. I, I mean, the Magnificat comes to mind here, and I find it incredibly interesting and, and just beautiful uh, hymn to the Lord because she, she starts out that way. I, I've got it here on my, my phone. Mary, Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord my, I, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. Behold, from now on, generations will call me blessed. She starts out very personal. This is about her, her deliverance. God has delivered her and by giving her a child, by giving her a son, by exalting her and giving her a high place in the kingdom of God, it's, it, it opens with this really personal moment of Mary's feeling of redemption, Mary's feeling of salvation. But she doesn't 
stay there, she, as the Magnificat continues, what's very, becomes very personal, what's very personal becomes corporate in scope. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. So, so Mary's deliverance is the deliverance of Israel, which is the deliverance of the cosmos. And so she sees herself as a kind of sign, a microcosm of God's grace for the whole world. Uh, her, to, for her to be blessed is for the world to be blessed. And that is actually her blessing, is that she gets to be the mother of the savior of, of the cosmos. Yeah, I think that brings us back to the language of Mary as the mother of God, right? Which is perhaps to some listeners, a striking thing to say about Mary, because of course, God is eternal, God is timeless. And yet, how can the early church insist upon this claim that Mary was indeed the mother of God? Well, I think the virgin birth also protects us from the, this idea of introducing a notion that there was a pre-existing human being, even it was, uh, of course, a fetus in Mary's womb, that God then decided to use or to come upon for his own redemptive purposes, right? So the idea of the mother of God, therefore, shields us away from that false notion. I think there we have a kind of Nestorian idea or a kind of adoptionist idea where Jesus Christ was a a pre-existing human being with his own full personhood, which God then used for his own purposes because God somehow approves of Jesus Christ. But rather the virginal conception uh, uh, shows us that from the very beginning, this was God's act that was doing it. And so when Mary gave birth, Mary gave birth to God in flesh. And so they insisted on this, this claim that Mary was indeed the mother of God in contrast to actually the Nestorians and the adoptionists who insisted otherwise that Mary was simply a mother of a child or a man who then became a God. And I think that's an, an emphasis worth bringing out here as well. So can we say then that the issue, of course, that, that probably is, is foremost in a lot of Christians' minds when they're thinking about the Apostles' Creed, which is the transmission of the curse, right? Because Christ is not under the curse. He's the only human after the fall who is not under the curse at his conception, right? That that, that break, that, that ability of him to be born not under the curse of sin, not dead in his sin since Adam, that problem is dealt with in the issue that we just talked about in this last article, which is the conception of the Holy Spirit. Is that right? I think we can say that. And, and yet there are other aspects that are being signaled, important aspects that are being signaled in him being born of the Virgin Mary but we've dealt with the problem of sin in the conception of the Holy Spirit. I think so. Yes, that's exactly right. So I think what's being emphasized in the virgin birth is not primarily a block of sin's transmission, but rather on the monergistic work of God in this work of redemption. Yeah, that's great. The, the idea of being under a curse, just uh, to like a little footnote here, it's important to be able to say that Jesus was created with a sinless human nature so that he is uh, not tempted by his own sinful desires, for example, as we are tempted. And yet he, he is born, you know, Galatians puts it this way. He's born under the law and particularly under the, under the law as it current in, in its current cosmic state, bringing about a curse upon, uh, upon the earth. Uh, uh, the, he, he, he is, called to obey uh, the will of God 
as Adam and Eve are, but in the state not of Eden, but of of curse, of destruction. I hear creation yes. rising up to a yes. with you, yes. Tommy. As the crow, as the crow <laughs> ominously in the background. It's going to sound like a special effect that we just sort of included into the thing. Yearning with earnest expectation. Well, one thing that's always fascinated me is um, is you know in how in scripture and especially like at the end of Jesus's genealogy, there's there's such a clear emphasis that Matthew seems to want us as the readers to know that that Jesus is born of Mary. In fact, she's mentioned in in a way that in, in a sense that genealogy doesn't require there at the end of at, at the end of the uh, genealogy genealogy there of uh, of Jesus. Um, it's it re- always reminds me something, Scott, that uh, our teacher Doug Groff used to mention how you know the concept of of Jesus being conceived of the Holy Spirit, then now in a sense sort of nullifies his being conceived of Joseph, obviously. Thus, how is he then son of David? And in a sense, we kind of have to broaden our term son here. And uh, and perhaps that's one reason why the New Testament authors are are stressing so much the Davidic uh, sonship of Jesus uh, because of the conception of the Holy Spirit. But then if we do the flip side of that and talk about his being born of Mary, you know, we don't know a lot about Mary, but we do talk about we know a little bit about her family background, you know, cousin of Elizabeth. I think Luke mentions Elizabeth coming from a erotic background, a priestly background. So you think that maybe to a certain degree, because of Mary, that there is more Levitical family lineage in Jesus that you can trace through his mother's line, which in a sense almost qualifies him to be priest. But then the New Testament bends over backwards to make sure that we know that Jesus' priesthood is not of Aaron, it's of Melchizedek. And I can't help but to wonder if there's sort of a matrix in play here. You know, let's stress the the mother of Jesus, Mary, who is come from a potential priestly background, and sort of set it up in such a way that he is not that. You know, if he were, if even if he was the ideal perfect Aaronic priest as as Leviticus requires, it's set up in such a way that the ideal priest of Levi, the ideal priest of Aaron, is not adequate because he has to offer sacrifice for himself. He has to do it on a routine basis. What you need is a better priesthood, and it's almost set up in such a way to show that Jesus is not of that. He is of of something better, and I can't help but to wonder if the mentioning of Mary in this sort of unnecessary way, in, in a manner of speaking, as genealogies go, is just a way of stressing the priesthood of Christ that he is qualified for, that he will not be. Because in fact, his priesthood is going to be of a higher, better order. Yeah, I I think it's important to emphasize that difference too. That not the New Testament authors don't always make, but the idea that it's it's not it's not a not this but this difference. It's a not merely this, so much more this, right? It's it's not that he's not accomplishing anything that's in the line of Aaron, right? But he's so much more than Aaron, and. It's not that he's not bringing about the militaristic victory that Israel might have longed for. It's that he's doing so much more in his victory, right? Right. 
and I think I, I hadn't thought about this until because I mean we've had this con- this conversation and uh, with with Doug and with each other before. I hadn't thought about it before until you put it this way. It's not that he's it's it's not that he's not in the line of the of David, right? Because of the virgin birth, he's so much more than just the line of David, right? He's in the line of David, but conceived of by the Holy Spirit, right? You know, no one's going to say that that's a that's a deficit in his resume, right? Yeah, which, son is, son of God which is in, remarkable. Yeah. Sorry, son of God in the even fuller sense. Yeah, yeah, right. Kind of like that's what sonship that we used to use for David. It's really about this. I kind of think about that with Israel too. How is Israel the son of God? Well, Israel's the son of God. There's kind of a typological and sort of an organic way in which this can be fulfilled. The typological one is Israel as son of God is a shadow or anticipation of how Christ is really the son of God, right? Then the organic way is Israel is son of God as as Christians because we are huiothesia, right? We're adopted in, in the natural born son of God, who is Jesus Christ. Which maybe pulls back in Gray's language of fittingness, that he is, even as he is greater than all of these things, he's, he's the greater David, he's the greater son of God, he's the greater Adam. He is all of that in human flesh, as born of a woman amen amen all right now we should close in doxology but we won't subject our listeners to that um so with that said friends uh thanks for joining us for this conversation um this continues i continue to learn from these conversations as we sit down and we talk about this and I get to hear from everyone in their expertise. It's fun to do that. It's one of the best parts of being at seminary. And for any of you who are, whose interest is peaked during these conversations and you want to know, Hey, where is it that I could continue having conversations like this? Um, we would draw your attention to RTS Washington and the RTS system as a whole. Um, uh, this is a learning community where we gather together to delve into the deep things of the word of the Lord. And uh, I enjoy listening to these, the faculty members. And I also, to be honest, and I, we've all had this conversation before. I often learn more from the students in class than, um, than I, than I read, learned maybe in my reading, preparing for class and the way that they respond, the way that they bring their own perspectives to bear it is truly iron sharpening iron, and uh, we'd encourage you, if you're interested in this kind of learning, in this kind of community, to consider Reformed Theological Seminary in Washington, D.C. But regardless, you can always find us here on the Faculty Podcast, and until next time, take care. Welcome to the RT. Okay, what is it? Uh, welcome to. Have, the, go ahead. I was just going to ask if you have the scripted at all. If I have it scripted, the intro. What do you mean? Do you do, do you do this by memory each time? Well, I did after like the twenty sixth time. Okay, yeah. yeah, fair enough. <laughs> okay, all right.
Welcome to the faculty brought. Okay. <laughs>